0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me once again to the first book of your Bible, the book of Genesis. If you are new to us, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church. And what we've been doing over the past couple of months is we've been looking at the patriarchs of the faith, these fathers of the faith. And we'll be continuing our study this morning in Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis chapter 26. Well, as we approach God's word this morning, let us go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our ears to hear and our eyes to see your word clearly this morning. Father, would our hearts be transformed by it, and may our affections for our Savior Jesus increase as we consider what you have done for us in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's one main point that I think seems evident in our text this morning. There's certainly more that we could say, but here's one overarching theme. It's short and it's brief. Let me give it to you now, and then I'll add to it in our three subpoints this morning. So first, the main point. God is worth trusting in at all times. God, our God, the Holy God of the universe, He is worth trusting in. At all times. As we begin this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe that God is worthy of your trust now and in every situation in your life? Maybe you believe it with your ears, but do you believe it with your heart this morning? I'll be honest, mine is a bit heavy. As I study this text during the week... I realize that my heart is prone to wander. And instead of trusting God, I give in to anxiety. I give in to fear. I give in to doubt. I think I know better than God how my life should go. How about you? Do you live like you believe this? That God is always worthy of our trust? This morning we'll see that our God is trustworthy now and forever. Let's look at the first way we see this in the text. First, we'll see that God is worth trusting in even when his promises look like they're not coming true now. God, he's he's worth trusting in even when times are difficult, even when his promises look like they're not coming true right now. Well, let's jump right into the text and see this. In chapter 25, let me give you an overview of the first part of the chapter. We see in verse 1 that since Sarah's death, Abraham takes another wife named Keturah, and they have children. Verse 5 says that even though he had other children, he knew that Isaac was the promised son, and so he gave Isaac all that he had. And then we see in verse 7 that this hero of the faith, Abraham, he passes away. He's buried in the cave of Machpelah with uh, his deceased wife, Sarah. But now we see that the same question confronts Isaac and Rebekah. Will God open up Rebekah's womb? Look at verse 19 and following. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramaean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramaean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see that at first, Rebekah is barren. Now it's interesting that when Abraham's story begins, he's 75 years old, and then he's 100. When Isaac is born, that means that the barrenness obstacle took 25 years to resolve. Here, Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebecca, and he's 60 when the twins are born. A 20 year wait. Long and agonizing for both the patriarchs, and for Sarah, and for Rebecca. But though the length of time is not much different, in our text, Sarah's barrenness takes nine chapters to resolve. Whereas Rebecca's barrenness takes one verse. One can almost read chapter 25, verse 21 as a ditto mark. Read in all the anxiety, all the concern, all the uncertainty of Sarah's barrenness here with Rebecca. Now, what do you think is the logic of God? Why would God make promises that in them will be a multitude of descendants and then nothing happens? for years, for decades. Can Sarah have a child? Can Rebecca have a child? Rachel later has problems conceiving. We think about the barrenness of Hannah and others in the Bible. God opens the womb, and God closes the womb. God seems to be making it clear to his covenant people that it will not be their own doing that his promises will come to pass. There's clearly more going on behind the scenes than they could see with their own eyes. We didn't see in verse 21 that Isaac prayed. He prayed, and the Lord answered. And again, just like we saw last week, we see that God moves through prayer in the lives of his people. God is worth trusting in, even when his promises look like they're not coming true now. Again, 20 years of struggle. Infertility. And yet again, God follows through with his promises. Rebecca is pregnant. Not only that, but just twins in her womb. But this pregnancy is an unexpected complication. We see in verse 22 that the word struggle there implies a serious fight. We're not talking about a kick here and a kick there. It literally means that the children almost crush each other in the womb. I mean, this is a rugby match going on inside her. There's a battlefield in her womb. Now, I've never had experience with pregnancy, but I'm told that no pregnancy is easy. But this one, this pregnancy is out of this world. There are twins in her womb, not who fight as teenagers, but they fight before they were ever even born. The pregnancy is so bad that Rebecca asks, why is this happening to me? It's a question of anguish. It's too much. I mean, for 20 years, Rebecca probably wanted nothing more than to be pregnant. I mean, this was the promise, and yet year after year after year go by, and now that she's pregnant, she says, well, I'm not sure this is a good thing after all. Why is this happening to me? Well, she did the best thing she could, right? She inquired of the Lord. And God answers and gives a perplexing prophecy in verse 23. He says that there are two nations in a room that the older will serve the younger. From Jacob, you get Israel, a child of the Spirit. From Esau, you'll get the Edomites, children of the flesh. The parents, Isaac and Rebekah, they knew clearly that Jacob was the chosen one. God was very clear. Now, who would you normally think would be the first in line? You you take the oldest. The oldest was the one who would normally get the inheritance. Who did dad want to choose here? Well, dad wanted to choose Isaac, or Esau, I should say. Isaac liked Esau. He was a man of the field. Esau was strong. Esau was a warrior. Esau was both the logical choice and he was a traditional choice. But as we see, he wasn't God's sovereign choice. Have you noticed the pattern in Genesis? Cain is the oldest, but who did God choose? Seth. Ishmael's is the firstborn. Who did God choose? Isaac. Esau's is the oldest. Who does God choose? Jacob. Later, Jacob has 12 sons. Reuben is the oldest, but who does God choose? Judah. And so this trend continues. We see that God is the one who chooses. God says, I will choose who I will choose. He's working out His divine purposes for His glory. Significantly, the New Testament is painstakingly clear that the order of nature does not determine the order of grace. 1 Corinthians 1 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friend, tradition does not determine grace. Convention does not dictate grace. Neither does talent or industrious hard work. Grace does not bow down to social privilege or status. Most significantly, Paul argues the principle in Romans 9 that we read earlier this morning. It shows that the birth in the Jewish bloodline does not ensure salvation. And it refers to the case of Jacob and Esau. It said, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that they were not yet born and had not done it. Anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob became the heir because of God's choosing. Jacob became the heir of God's choosing, not because of moral virtues or good works. Because the twins were not even born when that choice was made. Not only that, but God's choice went beyond the individuals to nations. The selection of Jacob individually and the Israelites corporately was solely due to divine choice. We see that this idea of God's choosing his people consumed the biblical writers. Listen to a few examples. First Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul doesn't say these disciples were chosen because they were receptive. He says that they received the gospel because God chose them. In Acts 13, we see many Gentiles coming to believe in Christ. And it says in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed. Believed. It doesn't say those who believed were thereby appointed, but those appointed then. Because of their appointment, they believed. And in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now our faith in God is based on God's choosing of us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. So when did it happen? When were believers chosen? Before we were born. Before anybody was born. Before the foundation of the world, his plan was set in place. Now some of you might be sitting here and listening to this text preached and you might be offended by it. That God would choose Jacob over Esau. That God would choose Jacob to believe and Esau not to even before they were born. And you ask, how is this fair? How is God being fair? And if you're asking that, I would state very kindly that perhaps you don't know yourself or others very well. You don't know how profoundly sinful we all are. You don't know how profoundly sinful I am. Now, Romans is clear in chapter 3 that none of us are righteous, not even one. So, friend, the real question is not why didn't God choose Esau? The better question is why did he ever choose Jacob? I mean, Esau was a shallow man. He was governed by his feelings. He was governed by his flesh. At the same time, The cool, calculating Jacob invites a flood of negative attributes. Rascal, opportunist, cheating, ambitious, self-seeking, self-serving, grasping, scheming, heartless, and deceitful. Now when you put these two men side by side, Esau and Jacob, it's a wonder how God would choose either one of them. That's the scandalizing question. Why choose either of them? Why choose any of them? Why choose any of us? While Jacob was chosen, he was the chosen patriarch, he should have rested in God's promises and not try to take this birthright into his own hands. Even though it didn't look like the promises were coming true right then for him, he should have rested in God's grace should have rested in the promise that he had received in his election. God's word of his choosing should have been enough for him. Oh, Christian friend, God is worth trusting in, even when his promises don't look like they're coming true right now. If you're a Christian, I want this truth to settle into your heart for a minute. God chose you. I once heard it said that the most important thing is not what you are or where you are, but whose you are. God chose you. He chose you not because of anything you've done, or who you are, or the family you were born in, or your nationality, or good works, or anything, but surely because of his grace and his love. God reached down and he grabbed you, his enemy, and made you his friend. It's absolutely wonderful. This doctrine of God's choosing should be celebrated by the children of God who are amazed by his grace. Can you handle this thought? That you, Christian, were chosen in eternity past. This is an intensely thrilling idea. A believer in Jesus, God has known and loved you before the foundation of the world. This can only lead us to worship and utter all-encompassing humility before God and fellow sinners who are hopelessly lost apart from Christ. Oh, Christian, God chose you. I hope that brings celebration and comfort in your heart this morning. But we see more in our text. Let's look at a second truth in our passage. Second, God is worth trusting in. God is worth trusting in even when you're tempted with something better now. This same God, God of the universe, he's worth trusting in even when you're tempted with something better now in this present life. Now look at these, these teenagers, these boys. In our passage, Esau, his name means hairy. And apparently he was a hairy guy. Jacob's name means heel catcher. He was a crafty one, a sneaky one. So essentially what you have in these two boys is we have Fuzzy and Sneaky, the glorious sons of Isaac. If you're making a movie, those could be their names. These are our two boys here. One kid is fleshly and one kid is a liar. How would you like these two boys to be your sons? We're going to see Fuzzy and Sneaky here in a bit of trouble. Look at verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is an odd story, isn't it? First of all, what do we know about these boys? Well, Esau became a skillful hunter, he's a man of the country. He kills it and grills it every night. He's probably pretty strong, he's an outdoorsman, he likes to arm wrestle for fun with his friends. But Jacob, Jacob's a quiet man. He would probably enjoy a night of quiet reading by the fireplace. He enjoys staying among the tents. He likes to be at home. And unfortunately, their parents played favorites. Isaac liked Esau. Rebecca liked Jacob. There was division in the home. Now, it's not wise to play favorites with your kids. You don't do it. You don't come home with a box of Dunkin' Donuts and say, Hey kids, I brought donuts for one of you. Ha ha. No, that's mean. You don't play favorites, but we see Isaac, the patriarch, the man who knows that God said Jacob's the chosen one. He plays favorites. Rebecca plays favorites. Now, what should Isaac have done here? What should he have done? Well, He knew that Jacob was the one to receive the blessing. God told him the plan. He could have led his family according to the word of God. But instead, he contributed to the family dysfunction we're about to see. In verse 29, we see Esau was out in the field one day, and he's really, really tired. He comes up to Jacob, and he says, I'm hungry. And Jacob says, hey, I I have some, some delicious stew over here. It's really, really good why don't we work out a deal? Why don't you give me your birthright and I'll feed you lunch? We'll call it even. And Esau says, sure. Sounds like a good deal. Now, this is strange. Why does Esau do it? Why does he sell off his birthright for a meal? And Well, in verse 34, it gives us a hint, doesn't it? It gives us a clue. It says in verse 34 that Esau despised his birthright. He was careless about it because he didn't care about it. It meant nothing to him. He sold it for a single meal, and not even a five-course meal cooked by a michelin star-approved chef, but a one-course meal. Not just a one-course meal, but one cooked by a single man. Now, I know some single men are great chefs, but many are not. I was one of those who couldn't cook if his life depended on it. I remember one time almost setting my flat on fire because I kept the aluminum lid on my frozen meal as I tried to heat it up in the microwave. A flame ignited in the microwave and I freaked out. I couldn't even cook an already prepared meal. That's how bad I was. Now... Certainly Jacob was a better cook than I was. He was a man of the tents. But this wasn't some fancy meal. This was a basic stew. In the Hebrew, it literally reads red, red, or the red stuff. Esau sold his birthright for some red stuff. And the word in verse 30 for eating is more like gulping it down. It occurs nowhere else in the Bible, but in rabbinic Hebrew, it's used of animals eating, animals devouring food. So we see that Esau is quite dramatic, isn't he? I'm about to die! And I want to devour your red stuff like an animal. Now, I don't think Esau was about to die. Just my commentary. I think he was exaggerating. Now, I don't think you come in on your own strength from the field and declare that you're starving to death. Now, if you do that, you're probably not dying. Just a thought. And after he ate it, he just walked away. So it sounds like... He wasn't impoverished and in need of food to survive, to live. He was hungry, I get that. He was a a young man, and when young men are hungry, we better watch out. I mean, sometimes teenage boys will devour unidentifiable red stuff. It's a guaranteed fact. But here, what Esau does is he trades away his birthright for the red stuff. Now, this birthright is very important. It was the status of the firstborn. It meant the headship of the family. It meant a double share of the estate. Especially with just two boys, you'd get, he'd get double the amount of his brother if there's just two of them. You carry on the family name. Now, selling your birthright wasn't normal practice. It wasn't something people did. And yet none of that mattered to Esau. He despised his birthright. And this was a privilege to have land, to have nation, to have your That in your seed the nations would be blessed. Esau's problem is that those are future things. And he wants an immediate and fleshly thing. I don't want future glory. I want instant temporary satisfaction. I care more about the here and now than any future promises or future grace or future glory that God might bring. Now Jacob had a similar problem though, didn't he? maybe not as humorous, maybe not as odd. Esau wants some food, and Jacob uses that to get what he wants now. Rather than resting on the word of the Lord, he rests on manipulation to bring about the will of God. He's going to try to bring out God's blessing there, the birthright, through worldly means. He wouldn't wait for God's abundant blessings to come in the future. Maybe some of you have heard this psychological experiment back from the late 1960s. It was called the Marshmallow Experiment. What they would do is they took 600 four-year-olds, and they took each and every one of them and put them in a room by themselves, no distractions, no other kids, no other people, and they gave each one of those 600 kids a marshmallow, big juicy marshmallow there on the table. And they told these kids, we're going to come back in 15 minutes, and if you can refrain from eating that marshmallow, we're going to give you a second big juicy marshmallow. And then they left the room and they left that kid with that marshmallow for 15 minutes. Now, how would your kids do with that experiment? I'm not sure mine would do very well. But the funny thing was in this experiment experiment was how the children reacted. Some would do whatever they could to withhold temptation. Some would cover their eyes so that they couldn't see the marshmallow. Others would literally turn away so that the gaze of the marshmallow wasn't on them. Others would start kicking the desk and squirming and doing whatever they could because the temptation was too much. Some would tug on their pigtails, and some would even begin stroking the marshmallow as if it was a tiny pet animal. It's like, hey, little Fluffy, hey, little Fluffy. They would do whatever they could. They could just resist that marshmallow. But in the end, the study showed that the majority of the children ate the marshmallow before the allotted time. <laughs> that was encouraging for me to hear as I thought about my children. They couldn't wait for the greater grace that was to come. Now, God is trustworthy in his promises, and yet we often can't wait, can we? We jump on present pleasures instead of trusting in future grace. And the pleasures of the present are Fun. Even sin is fun. Sin is really, really fun. Now, don't misquote me on that or take that out of context, Glenn Jones. But sin is fun, isn't it? Sin brings pleasure. That's absolutely true. Why else would we do it? Why else would we sin? Now, I'm sure Esau enjoyed his meal. I'm sure he enjoyed it for the split second it took him to wolf it down. But he disregarded God. See, at the very heart of Esau's demise is a sad reality that he did not believe the word of God. God's promise was to him intangible, unreal. Jacob believed the promise. He cherished it. But for him, he didn't believe that God's promise could come apart from his own sinful manipulation of Esau. They weren't trusting God, but were tempted with something better in the present. But what does Romans 6.23 say is the sequel to the pleasure of sin? It says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says the pleasures of sin are for but a season. It's fun. You bet. You will enjoy your sin. But friend, it will lead to death. James 1.15 says... The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I once heard a story of Eskimos near the North Pole and how they dealt with these predator wolves that would come in and attack their livestock at night. See, what they would do in order to, to get those predators is they take a knife and they would sharpen that knife As sharp as they could. They'd get that tip as sharp as a needle. And then what they would do with that knife is they would take that knife and dip it in uh, the blood uh, of an animal. And they would take it out and then they'd freeze the knife with the blood on it. Then they'd dip it again in the blood and they'd freeze it. They'd do that several times until now you had a thick piece of frozen blood around this knife. And then what they would do is they would just leave the knife out of the open during the night. And of course, lo and behold, a wolf would come in the middle of the night, and it would smell that blood. It would see that blood, and it would begin licking that knife. begin licking it and licking it, and then that frozen blood would begin to melt, and it would get more and more excited. It would begin licking it more, and then eventually that knife would, would cut the tongue and cut the mouth of the wolf, and now it tastes that warm, fresh blood, and it would devour and attack that knife more and more until that next morning when the owner comes out and sees that predator dead in a pool of its own blood. Friend, that's what our sin does to us. We want sin now, but it'll it'll end up costing our lives. For Esau was a bowl of stew, and, and then at the end of chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, it was women. Esau married two of them, Judith and Basimoth. But not only that, they were Canaanites. Which, as we know, were forbidden for the people of God. See, for Esau, for for him, a future nation, a future people, a future opportunity as a nation of God, future glory, that's good and all. But I want some stew. I want some red stuff now. I want some women now. And I want two of them. And I don't care if they're Canaanites. I don't care if God disallowed it. I want them, and I want them now. But what sin does is it tastes good for the moment, but in the end it leads to death. Like the wolf licking that knife. It's delicious, it's wonderful, it's tasty, but our sin is bringing on death even if we don't know it. Well, what's it for us? Are there things you're tempted of in the present that you're willing to partake in because you can't wait for future glory? What things threaten your present and future enjoyment of God? I mean, for us, it could be any number of things. We want our sexual appetite satisfied now, and so before marriage or even in marriage, we try to satisfy those desires outside of what God has prescribed. Or we want a better reputation, so we lie about ourselves and others. We want more money, so we do unethical things. It could be any number of things that we could place on that list. But friend, don't give up on things of lasting spiritual value to satisfy yourself in the present. See, what God has promised us is far greater than an extra marshmallow. Well, it's sad, but Hebrews chapter 12 gives us some commentary on the situation in Genesis, and it tells us the last thing ever said about Esau. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now afterwards, at some point, he realized that the birthright was worth something, But it was gone. And he cried. He wept. This buff, this hairy hunter wept with tears because he saw that the thing he rejected was the very thing that was important. A relationship with God. The text says that Esau was unholy. Other translations say he was godless. God is worth trusting in even when you're tempted with something better now. And consider that as a follower of Christ, there is future grace. God is with you now. God will be with you later. And there is a coming day when there will be no more cancer. There's coming a day when diseased elbows will, will bend and work perfectly. When mangled nerves will be unmangled. The lame will get up and they will walk and they will dance with joy. The depressed will see their darkness lift and will sing of their never-ending gladness. The anxieties of the morning on that day will be gone forever. The dark nights of the soul will be a distant memory. Our daily struggle with sin and temptation will be finished. The shame of being abused will be scorched. The fear of death, it'll be a moot point. Persecution will be impossible because all those in heaven will love God. And friend, as a Christian, we will be with Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. To be with the Savior who was pierced for us. To be with our Lord who gave His life so that we could have life. To be with the one who has suffered for us so that we could be united to God. We will be with Him. Friend, this is future grace. Friend, don't splash around in the puddles that drip from the dumpster or the rubbish bin. Believe God's promise of future grace, that a tidal wave of His love will pour out on us for all eternity. Oh friend, God is worth trusting in, even when you're tempted with something better now. God has been faithful in the past. God is being faithful in the present, and so friend, God will be faithful in the future, guaranteed. Trust Him. Trust him now. Well, finally, there's a third point in our text. Third, God is worth trusting in even when facing our greatest fears. God is worth trusting in even when facing our greatest fears. Now, turning to chapter 26, it brings us another set of trials for Isaac. Verse 1, we see that there's a famine in the land. There's a bad economic downturn. Jobs are scarce. Food costs are high. Food is running out. It's a time of stress and grief. And God tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt, but to stay in the land. And this was important because down in Egypt, there's a lot of food there. There were were jobs there. Things were going pretty well in Egypt. I'm sure it would have been tempting to go down there and to eat their fill. But God says, stay in this place. Stay here. Times are tough. But trust me. May that make sense to you, but it's what I want. And Isaac trusts the Lord. Do you see that? He listens to God. And you'll notice there in verse 3, there's a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. You'll see land, you'll see seed, you'll see blessing. It's an encouraging few verses of obedience from Isaac. And the Lord appearing to him, the Lord being with him, the Lord comforting him with a reiteration of the covenant promises. This must have thrilled Isaac's heart. God says, stay there. In Gerar, I'll be with you, I'll bless you, and he did. And in the second half of the chapter, you see that God did bless Isaac in many ways. He blessed him with peace, he blessed him with prosperity. He was given one hundredfold, and even the help from God to navigate some tension with the men of Gerar regarding the wells and water that are there. God helped him navigate that and pointed him to a new place. God protected him in the dangerous sojourn. In verses 25, Isaac builds an altar to worship the Lord in response to God's revelation and work. He believes in God. God made promises. Later, we'll see that he keeps his promises. He always does so. But in between those two episodes, in between of God's appearing, in between of those promises and God's help, we find that Isaac gives in to fear and temptation. Look at verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, "Uh, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a little Genesis deja vu. You may remember Abraham doing this twice earlier in the book. You heard Mac preach about him being confronted by Pharaoh and Abimelech earlier in Genesis in here and Gerard asks, hey, Isaac, tell me about this lady you're with. Who is she? How did Isaac respond? Well, Isaac was doing well, but here when pressed, he was afraid and he reverts to deception to save his own skin. Sins against his wife and God, and instead of protecting her, he places her in great danger. Well, I, I might lose my life on account of my wife, so just, just, just take her. You can, you can have her. You would think he would have been obedient. He just saw God. The promises were restated to him. Everything is great. So what happens? Well, look at verse 8 and following. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, what happens? Well, Isaac gets rebuked by an unbeliever. Abimelech sees him laughing with Rebekah. Now, that seems to be a play on Isaac's name, which means laughter. Not sure if what he saw was them simply laughing, but clearly whatever Abimelech saw through the window was some unsister like activity. We'll leave it at that. But it makes it obvious that this isn't Isaac's sister. And really, in an act of God's grace, Abimelech discovers this truth and realizes that any man taking Rebekah could bring guilt upon him and their whole people. I mean, can you imagine being confronted and rebuked like that by an unbeliever? I mean, Abimelech does the right thing. The approval of man and keeping himself alive seems to be more important to Isaac than honoring God here. I don't know what Isaac's greatest fear was. I don't know what Abraham's greatest fear was. But on these three occasions, they were willing to sacrifice their wife to save their life. Seems... To me, in the text, that Isaac struggled with the fear of man and what man could do to him. And rather than trusting God, he gives in to the fear. Instead of trusting in the same God he trusted in a few verses earlier, and he will again a few verses later, he faltered. But friend, God is worth trusting in even when you're facing your greatest fears. Friend, as you consider this part of the text this morning... What are you afraid of? What threatens to move you away from the Lord? Are you afraid of other people? Are people too big in your heart? And is God too small? Now it's interesting to know what command Jesus, or sorry, more more than Jesus, but what command the Bible gives us more than anything else. You know, you might think, well, it's do not commit adultery, do not have more gods than one, or... Love one another. But Ed Welch, the author of When People Are Big and God is Small, in his very beginning of the book, states that the command in the Bible, more than any other, is do not be afraid. It's mentioned more than 300 times. It's mentioned at the end of chapter 26 of our passage this morning, verses 23 through 25. From there he Went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. And so he built an altar there, called on the name of Yahweh, pitched his tent there. The Lord was with him. Do you see that? And yet, so many of us give in to fear and give in to the fear of man, and what God wants Isaac to know, what God wants us to know is that He is with us. And yet this fear of man, this fear of other things, is something many of us struggle with. In reality, it's the basis of much of our anger and stress. We get angry because we're afraid of disappointing our boss, or afraid of losing our job. or we fear that our kids will ruin their lives. Or how about this? Are you wrestling with the fear of not being liked or accepted by someone? You worry so much about what other people think that it drives you crazy. Or you're stressed because you fear what others might think of you in light of some rumors going around. Or maybe you're afraid of being found out regarding something. You worry that people will find out what you're really like and they won't want to be your friend anymore. Or maybe you're afraid of death. Maybe every time you have a sickness or a body ache, you worry if you have a fatal illness and it drives you to doubt and worry. Or maybe you're afraid of persecution. Maybe you've come to faith and your specific people group hold that against you and want to take your life or to hurt you. You've believed in Christ and now your life is at stake. Is there some fear That you are letting drive you away from God? Friend, whatever it is, I hope that you see that our God is worth trusting in. Friend, God is with you. He will carry out his promises in you. Our God is worth trusting in, even when his promises look like they're not coming true. That's because the Son of God, Jesus, trusted God the Father, even when the promises didn't look like they were coming true for him. God is worth trusting in even when you're tempted with something better now. This is because Jesus trusted in God the Father when he was t- tempted with something better. It wasn't stew, but when Satan tempted him to eat after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus chose to trust in God the Father. God is worth trusting in even when we face our greatest fears. That's because Jesus trusted God the Father when he faced the greatest fear that any of us could face. And Jesus marched in the face of that fear. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was in anguish. He was about to face not just physical death, like Isaac faced, although it was physical death. It was more than that. It was a spiritual death. And when Jesus went to the cross, what he faced was utter and total rejection from God the Father. It was a complete severing or cutting off from him. It was the greatest fear that any of us could face. And he faced that fear for God's glory and for our salvation. Jesus faced the ultimate fear so that we could face our fears in faith. Jesus faced the greatest fear in order to give us his birthright. We don't take it for ourselves through our, our own efforts or manipulation. But we rely on Jesus who has purchased it for us. Through faith in him comes a birthright and an inheritance that is ours forever. And we can trust this God who faced the same temptations that we do. We can trust this God that faced the same fears that we do. There on the cross, what was being offered was forgiveness of our sins against the holy and righteous ruler and God of the universe. Our sin had separated us from God. It had severed us from his presence. And bringing death and judgment was the only just punishment that we could have. Apart from his substitutionary death on the cross, all of us will end up like Esau. One day, weeping in tears over what we passed up. An inheritance worth more than all the gold in this world. Life in the new heavens, life in the new earth, with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Oh friend, trust in Jesus to save you and your sins will be forgiven through Christ's death and you will be united to God forever this God is worth trusting in at all times. When his promises don't look like they're coming true, when we're tempted with something better now, and when we're facing our greatest fears, friend, this God is worth trusting in at all times. Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed a God worth trusting in. You are worth more than this world has to offer us. You are the God of the universe and you are the God of our salvation. Through Christ's death, we have been reconciled to you. Would we be a people who would trust you at all times, this afternoon, tonight, next week, next month, next year, and forever. Oh, Father, would we trust in you regardless of what we face? Would we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now it is fitting, as we always do, to respond to God's wonderful word by singing praises to him. Please stand as we sing.